Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly to God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Let's pray once more before we take a look at this passage. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have called us into your presence. Um, I agree with what Nathan said earlier, that this whole worship service from beginning to end tells the story of the gospel. Um, and precisely for that reason, we know uh, that you have an adversary that would love for us not to hear that story uh, and not to believe it, um, and who would like to tell us in any number of ways at, at this moment, as we have heard your word read to us, as we uh, are prepared to sit under it as your people, uh, he would love to tell us in any number of ways, you do not belong here. Father, he can, he can puff us up with pride. He can cause us to believe that we are better than those around us, that um, Father, we pray uh, that your spirit uh, would give us humility. Father, your adversary can tell us any number of sins that we bring into this room with us, but we have already heard, we have already confessed those sins, and we have heard your forgiveness. We have heard that you have dealt uh, with those sins, and as we often say, at this point in the service, there is no place for a guilty conscience. Um, because of what Christ has done uh, for us on our behalf, because of what we have been given. Father, I pray uh, that you would remind us uh, that we are your children and the guilt of our sin does not attach to us uh, any longer. And we can hear your word, law and gospel, all of it together uh, as the unified message to your people that it is that brings us before you and renews our hearts for your service and for your worship. Father, there may be people in this room that are just tired. 
that are just weary, um, that are just beaten down by this world, by the past week, by the past day. Um, Father, who feel abandoned, who are experiencing your silence in the midst of the hard things of life. Father, I pray that you would be close to the brokenhearted. Would you draw near uh, to those who are in grief, uh, to those uh, who are experiencing loss and suffering and pain for themselves, for those that they love, for the world around them. Uh, Father, you, you know that for all of us, there are times um, when this world seems to be too much. Father, I, I pray that we would hear the words of Jesus, that we would take heart because he has overcome the world, that we would receive his peace, which he gives to us, that's not like the peace that the world gives. Lord, I pray that in all of these ways you would fend off uh, the lies that your adversary would tell us, that you would remind us that indeed we do belong here, that we are your people, not because we have been so impressive that you had to have us, but precisely the opposite reason. You, you loved us when there was nothing impressive in us. You loved us when we were running the opposite direction from you. You are the one who have pursued us. And we give you thanks that you continue to do that even now as we take a look uh, at this passage. And so, Father, I pray as we look at it that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen? Well, let me start as we look at this passage with a question. How do you know that you matter? You say, that's kind of a heavy question to start with. Where, where are you going to go from there? Um, the reason I start with that question um, is because I think Paul has something really important uh, to say uh, to people who are conscious of status, people who are asking themselves and being asked all the time, in some ways having the question thrust upon them, how do you know that you matter? How do you know that you're significant? How do you know that you belong? How do you know that you have any status? Um, we've talked about the, the context of this letter. Paul is writing to a very status-conscious people. Corinth was a status-conscious place. Uh, and there were various ways to get there, right? To get status, to get to the top of the heap. You could do it with money. You could do it in, in cultural, artistic ways. You could do it with wisdom, intellectually. Um, that sounds a lot like the world that we live in uh, here in Boston. Lots of ways to the top, but everybody is trying to get to the top. And a lot of us are only here um, because we've been good at that for a long time. And so we, like the Corinthians, are constantly being asked, how do you know that you matter? How do you know that you, that you have status? Now, as we look at the way that Paul responds to that in, in this passage in particular, I want you to notice something interesting as we go through this. Um, Paul's argument is not that that question doesn't matter at all. His argument is not that you shouldn't care about the question of whether you matter, about, about, about your status. Um, Paul knows um, that every human heart um, is built, is wired, um, to ask that question. 
How do I know that I am of value? How do I know that I, that I matter? Um, there's, this, there's this great quote. I've, I've read this before. I love this. Um, one of Arthur Miller's latest, last plays. He's the guy that wrote Death of the Salesman. He also wrote this play called After the Fall. It's not as well known. It's more autobiographical. Um, and he's got this great quote, or great line, I should say, uh, near, near the end of it, where the main character um, says this. He says, you know, more and more, I think that for many years I looked at life like a case at law, a series of proofs. When you're young, you prove how brave you are or smart. Then what a good lover, then what a good father. Finally, how wise, powerful, or whatever. But underlying it all, I see now there was a presumption that I was moving on an upward path towards some elevation where I would be justified or condemned. A verdict, anyway. I think now that my disaster really began when I looked up one day and the bench was empty. No judge in sight. And all that remained was this endless argument with oneself, this pointless litigation of existence before an empty bench, which, of course, is another way of saying despair. What that line is getting at is the need built into every human heart to receive a verdict, a judgment. To hear an answer, you matter or you don't. Paul has already quoted uh, the book of Jeremiah at the end of chapter 1 when Jeremiah talks about boasting. Jeremiah said, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And, and what's interesting, what I want us to be keeping in mind and unpacking in this passage, again, is that neither Paul nor Jeremiah says, don't boast at all, right? Don't worry about whether you matter and how you know. The point is not to stop caring about that. The point is not to stop boasting. The point is, what do you boast in? Paul, like Jeremiah, is going to explain to us why the only stable, the only real, lasting means of boasting is for us to boast in God, to boast in what he has done for us. Paul's going to take this in three steps here in this, in this chapter. First, he's going to address the human penchant for boasting in wisdom, right? And this is kind of ground he's been covering for three chapters, and this is, this is about the end of his argument about uh, the difference between the foolishness of the cross and worldly wisdom. He's going to touch on that. But then he's going to touch on two other places where we tend to look for status or where we tend to boast, right? One is in the approval of other people, right? I look for status in what other people think of me. But then he'll make a turn and he'll say, not only should you not seek for status and boast in the approval of others, you also shouldn't seek to boast and find status in your own approval of yourself. So wisdom, the approval of others, self-approval are the three things that he's going to take on uh, in this passage. So here's where he begins. He says, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise, for the wisdom of this world is folly with God. Again, this is, this is kind of ground he's been covering for most of the first three chapters of 1 Corinthians, that what appears wise to the world is, in fact, folly, and that God's wisdom, revealed in the cross, 
looks like absolute, utter foolishness to the world. How, how could that be wisdom, to follow one who was arrested, tortured, crucified, and died? Paul brings this to bear on our penchant for self-deception, right? Let no one deceive himself. There are all kinds of ways that we like to deceive ourselves into thinking that we are wiser um, than we really are, that we know more than, than, than we really are. Um, you might have heard the story about Socrates, who was told by an oracle uh, that he was the wisest man in the world. And when he was told that, he said, that is nonsense. That is just silly. Look around at all the wise people around me. How could I be the wisest in the world? But as he talked to all those other supposedly wise people, he discovered something. He said, yes, they know a lot. They know a lot more than I do about X or Y or Z. But they don't know what they don't know. They have no awareness of how much they have left to learn. And he came to accept that he actually was wise because even if he hadn't learned as much as these other people, he knew what he didn't know. He, he knew of his own ignorance. He, knew, he, he kept from thinking that he was wiser than he really was. Now, remember, though, that when Paul is talking about this, he's not just talking about you know, the vastness of the universe. He's not, he's not just saying, don't think that you're wiser than you are because there's just so much out there, right? That may be true, but Paul's got something much more specific and challenging in mind here, which is the cross, right? What challenges our penchant to think that we are wiser than we are is the assault, the, the attack that the cross represents on our instincts about what success looks like, about what the good life looks like. This is, this is worth reflecting on this week. This is worth asking yourself this week. You know, we, we talk about the cross every single week in this church. We sing songs um, that talk about the cross. We talk about uh, Jesus having made peace uh, by the blood of his cross. We use those words all the time, and maybe we use them enough that it stops shocking us. It is worth asking yourself this week, does your idea of what the good life looks like line up with what God has revealed in the fact that salvation is found in a crucified Messiah? That, that the creator of the universe, that the, the one who is good, the one who is the good, the one who is goodness himself, chooses to reveal himself in this way, on an agonizing and shameful cross. It is worth asking, have you let that challenge sink in? It would be a good thing to, to, to pray about, to pray about with other people uh, in, this, in this church. Um, Paul is suggesting that if we really let that sink in to our hearts, that doesn't just... Um, that doesn't just like kind of knock our sense of how wise we are down a peg, like, oh, okay, I've got a little more to learn. Um, he's saying that's going to reset everything. That is going to turn things on their head.
it brings about this, this radical, radical change. Remember, um, he, he, has, he has detected that because the Corinthians um, have absorbed the values of the culture around them, because they are seeking status you know, in, for instance, the approval of others, that, that is leading to divisions, right? That is leading to divisions where one person says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollo, Apollos, I follow Cephas, right? Um, the radical, look at, look, at, look at how he describes the change that it brings ar- around when we realize that wisdom is revealed in the cross. Um, he says, He says, let no one boast in men. Let's see, this is at verse 21. Let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. And then listen to this list of what all things means. Paul, Apollos, Cephas, but not just them. The world, life, or death, or the present, and the future. I mean, all things, all things in time and space are yours. This absolutely turns things uh, on, on their head. Because he understands that all of these things belong to Christ, and you belong to Christ, and Christ is God's, he says in verse 23. And what this means is that your leaders don't play the role of being the ones who stand over you, giving you their approval, and telling you whether you belong and to which one of them you belong Rather, it's the case that they belong to you, that God puts leaders in your life as gifts to you to serve him, not to give you their approval, not to judge you, not to give you a basis for boasting. This is what leads into Paul's challenge to the idea that our sense of our status, of why we matter, should, should come from the approval of others, right? He's going he's gonna to challenge this next. Um, as, he, as he turns into, into chapter 4. Paul's got kind of a problem as he's writing this letter. So on the one hand, um, he doesn't want people to simply disregard what he's saying. Right? He doesn't want them to convince, he doesn't want to convince them so much that they don't need to follow anybody, Paul, Apollo, Cephas, or whatever, that they decide, oh, so we don't follow anybody, so none of what any of them are saying matters, including you, Paul. He doesn't want them to drop uh, what he is saying. At the same time, he doesn't want to assert his authority so much that he, that he undoes this message, right, of not putting so much stock in a particular leader. How is he supposed to assert his authority to give them the truth? Um, or rather, how is he supposed to not assert that authority without causing them to walk away from the truth? That's his problem. And what he does, essentially what he says is, the reason you need to listen to what I'm saying is not because I'm the one saying it, but because it's true. And how do I know it's true? Because of the one who told me. At the end of this letter, remember, in chapter 15, Paul is going to say, what was delivered to me, I handed over to you. Right? That Christ, was die- that Christ died according to the scriptures, he was buried, he was raised according to the scriptures. Usually we focus on that last part because it's this very nice, succinct um, uh, description of the gospel. Christ died, he was buried, he was raised. But it's, it's worth also listening to that first part of what Paul said. This was delivered to me 
and I handed it to you. And the authority comes from that. The authority is not, I am Paul, and I'm the smartest guy around, so you should listen to me. The authority comes from, I was knocked off my feet by Jesus himself, who gave me this message and the calling to bring it to you. He says, what I am is a steward. He says, this is how one should regard us. Chapter 4. This is how one should regard us. Servants of Christ, stewards of the mysteries of God. And then he says, it's required of stewards that they should be found faithful. Um, In other words, Paul is saying, I am not the one who judges you. I'm not the one who approves of you. Your your status does not derive from your connection to me. I belong to you. I am a servant of Christ. I am a steward of what he has to say. We together are accountable to him. Uh, We are parts of each other. He doesn't want the Corinthians playing this game, this game that we all play of basing our self-worth on how we measure up in someone else's judgment, how how someone else perceives uh, whether we matter, whether we succeed, whether we, 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 we measure up. The tendency is to believe that the way that we get that verdict, right, that, that, that judgment that says, yes, you're approved, you matter, you have status. The tendency is to think that the way that works is that we perform. We perform and we perform. We, we acquire wealth. We start companies. We acquire degrees. We enjoy success in relationships or on the athletic field or wherever, right? We perform and then we get the verdict. That's the game that we all play. If I perform, then I get the verdict. Paul does not want the Corinthians playing that game. He does not want them thinking that the way that they know that they matter is because of what others think of them. Now, the normal move from there in our world, right, in our, in our day and age, um, you know, particularly Americans, um, individualistic, as we are, the normal move is to say, okay, so if what other people think about me uh, is not going to be the the way that I know if I matter, then the answer is I find out if I matter by looking inside, right? It's what I think of me, right? It's my self-esteem. It's my my self-approval. This is really, really common, right? Looking, Looking inside. Uh, to find that, that source of worth. Uh, if you have watched any movie from Disney ever, that was the basic message of that, of that movie, right? It's, it's almost always you look inside. You look inside to find the truth. You look inside to find your value and your worth. Paul knows that that is very problematic. Listen to what he says. Uh, this is chapter 4. Verse 3, he says, With me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. Okay, so I'm not judged by you. It's not your approval. But then he goes on. In fact, I do not even judge myself. 
For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Paul is saying, where my status comes from and where your status comes from doesn't come from the way other people approve of you or not, but it also doesn't come from whether I approve of myself. He, He can even say, I am pretty sure that I've got a good, clean record. I'm not aware of anything against myself. But at the end of the day, in an ultimate sense, it doesn't matter. That is not what tells me that I matter, that I have status. I have a confession to make. Um, When I was a young man living in New York, I went to uh, Redeemer, which which was Tim Keller's church, for a few years. And I remember the sermon that Tim preached on this passage. Um, This was one of the most impactful sermons that I remember. And and my confession is that not the words necessarily, but the ideas that I'm talking about here are mostly from Tim. Because the way that he talked about this stuff was so formative and so important for me. But the real reason that I want to tell you that, um, by the way, Logos Bible Software gives you all of Keller's sermons. You can go and read the transcripts, um, which is a really dangerous thing. It's important to not do that until you've, if you're a preacher, it's important not to read Tim Keller's sermon until after you've written your own, um, because you will find it very hard not to plagiarize all of it if you do it the other way around. Um, But I did go back and I looked. February 24th, 2002. The, reason I, the real reason I want to tell you this is because I want to tell you about a conversation that I had. It must have been the last week of February, maybe the first week of March in 2002. Uh, I was working at the New York Fed at the time, and a friend of mine who worked there, um, he was a guy who had gone to MIT to do his undergrad in economics, and when he got to MIT, he was a wrestler. But then, like freshman year, he hurt his leg, and he couldn't wrestle anymore. Uh, and so, um, with all of his spare time, um, that's a joke, by the way, if you know anything about MIT students. I don't know how he did this, but he, he decided, okay, I can't wrestle anymore, i got to find something else. So he decided to take up theater. And he got the bug. He loved it. Uh, in fact, when I first visited MIT uh, back in 2002, there were these arts at MIT posters, and it was a picture of him. Performing, performing some role in, in Hamlet, I think. Anyway, he finishes his degree at MIT, he moves to New York City and says, I'm gonna be an actor, right? And so he becomes a starving actor, you know, off, off, off Broadway, right? Except, unlike most of those starving actors in New York City, the way he pays the bills and makes ends meet isn't by becoming a, a waiter or attending bar someplace. He's got a degree in economics from MIT, So he becomes an assistant economist at the New York Fed. Um, Now, (laughs) this is kind of what working for the public sector can be like. Um, He was not the most efficient uh, assistant economist. He he spent most of his time uh, at the Fed looking for auditions, uh, you know, kind of pursuing that, 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 that dream, or kind of bouncing around from cube to cube and having conversations with, with us. We, 
we loved this guy, and at the same time, we hated seeing him coming because we knew, like, if he sat down in your cube and started talking, you were going to lose your morning. Um, but he was, he, was, he was a great guy. And I remember one time he came and he sat down in my cube. So again, this is like late February or early March of 2002. I've just heard a sermon on this, on this passage. And he's looking kind of depressed. And he says, oh, man, the reviews for my latest play. It's just awful. And, and, and you know what? I just can't. I just can't read these anymore. I just can't read reviews. I'm done. Okay, I'm not going to read any more uh, reviews of my plays because the people who go and review these things, they're fickle. You know, they don't know me. They don't, they don't spend any time seeing what goes into this. They see one performance. They write their review. Why should I care uh, what they have to say about me? From now on, the only thing that matters is what I think. Was I happy with the performance? Right? Do I feel good about what I'm doing as an actor? Um, and because I had just heard a sermon preached on this passage, um, I was able to say to him, you know, I am with you about not reading the reviews and, and not basing your sense of self-worth on what these reviewers are saying to you. Yeah, they're, 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 they're fickle. You know, why should, why should you take them as being reliable? The question is, though, are you sure that by turning from their opinion of you to your opinion of you, you've really solved that problem. Would you say that your opinion of you is any less fickle than theirs is? Would you, would you say that it's any more stable? Do, do you think that what you think about you is really a reliable way of judging who you are and whether you matter? And I remember he kind of went, and he thought about it for a while. He went, darn it. And he got up and he walked away, and I got the rest of my morning back. Um, Paul has found the solution to this problem. For him, it is a small matter that he should be judged by the Corinthians or by any human court, but he also doesn't judge himself. It is by the Lord that he is judged. And then that begs the question, why is that better? Why is it better to be judged by the Lord? Who, after all, is a holy God? Who, after all, is perfect? Who has revealed himself as a God who will not let the guilty go unpunished? Well, if you've been in this church for a while, you know the answer to that already. Because the same passage where God says, I will by no means let the guilty go unpunished, is the one where he says, I am a God who is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, who shows mercy to a thousand generations. What Paul is able to say, because he is on this side, the same side that we are on of the cross, because he's able to say that God's wisdom has been revealed there in the foolishness of the cross. He is able to say that if we have put our faith in Christ and the Lord judges us, then justice is on our side. Because the penalty for our sins has already been paid. It would be unjust of God 
to punish us for them. Paul knows, as well as we do, that there was only one who lived a perfect life. There was only one who, on the basis of his own actions, could stand up under the judgment of a holy God uh, and be judged innocent. Only one who never lifted up his soul uh, to what was false. Only one who could have earned a verdict of innocent. But Paul also knows, to go back to that Arthur Miller quote, that, that those, those lines about being before an empty bench, no judge in sight, despair, Paul also knows that the way that all of us get out of that courtroom with a verdict of innocent, a verdict of approved, a verdict of loved, is not because there's no judge, but because the judge has come down off the bench and has taken our place where the defendant is supposed to sit. It was because Jesus went into that courtroom and received our verdict in our place that we can receive his. That we can know that as the Lord judges us, his judgment is that you are my beloved child, my beloved son, my beloved daughter. You are my people. And this really does turn everything on its head. Right, Because it means that rather than the pattern being you perform and you perform and you perform and you perform and then you get the verdict that tells you how you did, this says you get your verdict first. That as you put your faith in Christ, you receive the verdict. Righteous, loved, accepted. And on that basis, then we can begin to perform. Not in order to earn God's love for us. That's already done. But because we've been set free. We're able to be generous towards people as God's love is poured into our heart because we're free of basing our status on how much money we have. We're able to be kind and compassionate because we're not basing our status on how much power we have over other people. We can be gentle and we can speak words of peace because our status doesn't come from always being the smartest in the room or being right. We get the verdict first, and then we can begin to perform. The other question that I want, you to, I want to ask you, that I want to ask you to think about this week, even as you think about the cross, is even as you think about what the cross reveals to you about your sin, make sure that you also remember what it reveals to you about the depths of God's love and how much greater it is than your sin. If you are walking around carrying a burden of guilt, if, if, you, are, if you are one um, who is reminded often by God's adversary and ours of all of the ways in which you have failed him. I want you to know that because of the cross of Christ, because of his death for our sins, because of his resurrection for our life, those very accusations can become powerless. They can become sources not of guilt, but actually sources of gratitude. 
Because when the devil whispers in your ear, hey, don't forget you did this, you can actually turn to him and you can say thank you for reminding me of yet another thing that my Savior died for. Another thing that was laid on his shoulders and not mine. Another reason that I can say, hallelujah, what a Savior. It is this same Savior that has put this meal in front of us to nourish our faith, to feed our souls, to bind us together as his people. So before we come to this meal, let's give thanks.